Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. This week, we're talking about sugar. Today, Stanley interviews Michael Gorin and Emily Ventura, who have just released a new book called Sugar Proof, the hidden dangers of sugar that are putting your child's health at risk and what you can do. Over the weekend, we're going to release a special follow-up episode where Dr. Ventura and I talk to a family about using the sugar-proof method. So I hope you enjoy this episode and stay tuned for more. Michael Gorham, Emily Ventura, welcome to Bite Science Experts. Thank you, Stanley. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. Michael and Emily, you, you carry out research on the physiological impacts of sugar on, on the body. Can you describe this work for me? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> so a, lo- a lot of our work is uh, looking at how, how sugar specifically affects uh, children, uh, why children are more susceptible to sugar, how it affects their growth and development, Starting starting early in development, and by that I mean during pregnancy, uh, looking at the effects, for example, of uh, transmission of sugars from the mother to the infant, uh, and how it affects the fetus, all the way through effects in infancy, childhood, and adolescence. So our research is particularly interested in, in how children are uniquely vulnerable to the effects of too much sugar, and how it can cause long-lasting effects. You've both just written a book called Sugar Proof uh, on the hidden dangers of sugar in the diet. Uh, can you give me some brief highlights? Sure, yeah. Well, we've organized the book into three parts. The first part of the book talks about the science of sugar, uh, why it's become so ubiquitous in our food system, uh, why children are more vulnerable to sugar. We decode the different types of sugar. Sugar has more than 200 different names. So we try and explain the different chemistries of sugar and where to find them and how it affects uh, the, the growing body, children in particular. The second part of the book is more of the how to uh, how to talk to children about sugar. The overall focus of the book is to try and get children to cut down on sugar. And we're, not, we're not asking families or children to eliminate sugar, but rather to be able to self-regulate sugar. So in the second part, we have various practical strategies uh, that families can use that are simple to implement and sustainable for long-term uh, reduction of sugar. And then the third part of the book uh, is more about real practical issues like recipes that Emily developed, uh, none of which have added sugar. And all, all of this is particularly designed uh, for families because most, most of these types of books that exist uh, are tar- targeted t- towards adults, not to children or not to families. And we think there are very special issues at play that we need to address when uh, tailoring some of these solutions to to families. 
I think Emily may want to add to some of that as well in terms of some of the practical tools that we developed. Yes, like Michael said, one of the unique aspects of Sugarproof is that we have a realistic, non-restrictive approach. And what that means for us is that we want kids to be growing up in a way where they start to self-regulate and be able to know for themselves when they've overdone it with sugar. And beyond that, it's not just about limiting sugar. It's about adding things in and just developing an appreciation for whole foods and natural tastes and the sweetness that comes from fruit and, you know, the different vegetables and different ways to prepare them and getting them involved in the kitchen is a big part of sugar proof as well. Because when you have a palate that's set to healthy foods, then when you taste something like, you know, cotton candy, candy floss, just straight sugar, you're better able to know, wow, that was really sweet. And I maybe don't need to eat this whole thing. You know, I'm satisfied with just a bite of it. And the way that we like to teach families is just to um, encourage them not to have like a sugar police type approach and not to come down on their children, but rather to bring their children alongside and raise them in a way to appreciate good food and to sort of to know when it's been too much and they've had enough and they don't need anything else sweet that day. So we do that through, um, you know, our various chapters, we explain that approach. And then, as Michael said, we have two different plans that we suggest. One is a seven-day plan where it's not a diet, it's a family challenge where families can go seven days um, with no added sugar just to give themselves a, a reset. And that's actually really effective just in one week, we've seen. And the other approach is to take 28 days to just really gradually reduce the amount of sugar that, that's in the house and that... Um, that families eat and just both the goal in both of those cases is just to bring sugar consumption down to a more moderate level. And along with that, we have our recipes, which you know gives ideas for what you can have instead and um, just new ideas to have for family meals and snacks and beverages as well. I can see why it's an important book. Now, do you have your own motives as to why you wrote this book, Sugar Proof? Yeah, I think there's 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 probably several several motives. I mean, as we've we wanted to find a way to to help families uh, understand the dangers of sugar in children. I think there's a, there, there's obviously a lot written about this topic in various modes, um, but none of like I mentioned, none of it is uniquely focused on children. So we wanted to. To be able to talk directly to families, families with young kids, to help them understand how sugar affects bodies and disrupts the process of healthy growth and development. There's a lot of recent research on this topic uh, and a lot written about it, but we wanted to pull it all together in one place to have a comprehensive uh, review of the science in everyday terms that people and the public would understand, and also to offer practical solutions like Emily just uh, talked about. So overall, the intention really is is just to help families navigate the high sugar food landscape in which we're now living uh, so that they can raise healthy eaters who, like Emily said, can better self-regulate on sugar while still enjoying everyday sweet treats that are 
typically the you know often the hallmark of of kids. So we don't we don't want to eliminate that. So I think it's all to do with translating the current research into practical solutions for families everywhere to basically help us as a society reduce our dependence and uh, and and preference for 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 sweet foods. Emily, do you have any uh, particular motive for uh, writing this book? Yes, well, I was so excited to have the chance to collaborate with Michael on this. Um, you know, as a community educator and also I've worked in research, educating families in that setting as well. I already knew, you know, how tricky this issue is just because kids and families are inundated with sugar everywhere and marketing doesn't help by any means. It's so confusing as a parent and as a, as a child to understand what's actually good for you and to find good options um, amidst all the less healthy ones that are you know, there in your face when you're in the store or um, with friends. But now that I have two kids of my own, I understand these issues on an even deeper level. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what to feed my own kids now that um, my, my boys are four and seven. And so you know, between all these experiences, I've thought a lot about this topic. And it's exciting to have a chance to share those thoughts and tips with, you know, larger audience. With this focus on, on, on children, Michael, how does sugar affect kids and, and why are kids so vulnerable to the effects of sugar? Yeah, we talk a lot about this in the book uh, under the kind of general pretext of what we call the, the, the perfect storm for sugar. And so I think there's a number of different factors. Uh, first of all, uh, it's not commonly known, but Infants or babies are born with a built-in preference for sweetness, which lasts through childhood. So if you were to do a study and determine uh, determine across age what people's sweet preference was, younger children would always choose the sweeter product. So we have this innate preference in children for sweetness. And when you combine that with the ubiquitous nature of sugar in our food environment, you have a recipe for, for disaster. So this innate preference for sweetness, it, it was designed from an evolutionary perspective to help babies uh, like breast milk and to make sure they would avoid consuming uh, toxic compounds that they might find um, in their environment. So Clearly, we've come a long way since then, and our food environment is just inundated uh, with sugar. 70% of processed foods in a supermarket have some type of sugar. 80% of snacks that are marketed to children have added sugar. So on top of this, we have food companies that are designing and targeting and marketing sweet foods to children because they know they're going to like them. They're trying to hook them early so that they will be customers for life. So we have that as well going on. And then on top of that, you might say, well, as kids, we all consumed a lot of sugar. 
a lot that's true, but the dynamics have changed because previously in previous generations, things like soda or candy were once in a while treats. Now they're everyday staples. So we have this food environment that's high in sugar. We have food companies marketing high sugar food items to children, and they have a preference for it. Now, on top of that, what the recent research is showing is how children are uniquely vulnerable to the effects of too much sugar. So they're much more susceptible to some of these effects, and that's because sugar can literally derail the process of healthy growth and development. Uh, And we'll talk about this later, but literally can affect the body from head to toe. And, and, And this effect occurs during the process of development. And that interaction of sugar on top of development can cause lasting long-term effects on on the body. Can I follow up with that? Are there any particular kinds of effects that we should be more concerned about than others? Sure. Well, there's some some of the some of the effects. When I give a good a good example of that would be uh, dental caries, for example, tooth decay. So why, why are children more susceptible to tooth decay? Uh, how, what does that have to do with sugar? Well, how that works is that kids uh, consume sugar more frequently throughout the day because they uh, suck from a bottle or they have more requirements for nutrition throughout the day. So, so, so they have longer-term frequency of sugar exposure. It's the sugar exposure that in the mouth that causes bacteria to grow and produce acid, and that acid can destroy teeth. And the reason that kids' teeth are more vulnerable is because they don't have the full amount of enamel until the tooth is fully developed. So without that enamel, the teeth are more susceptible to the damaging effects of the acid that are produced by the sugar. That's just a very tangible example. Uh, other long-term effects uh, are on the brain. Uh, I think most parents would be familiar with the sugar highs and lows that come with eating high sugar and the, the acute mood swings that can occur uh, from sugar. Some, some of the kind of day-to-day behavioral problems, but the research is now showing that there are lasting effects of excess sugar on brain development that can impact uh, things like memory, learning, and cognitive ability uh, over time. And then we get into the effects on chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, fatty liver disease. Chronic diseases that typically don't Uh, manifest until adulthood. Research is now showing that the seeds of those diseases are sowed early in life, in childhood, and all can be related to overconsumption of sugar. And and one one of the big problems here is that these chronic diseases can go unnoticed for many years, if not decades, because they can be without symptoms. They're chronic diseases, so they're slowly developing. And that slow development begins during childhood and then gets manifested 
early in life, uh, early in adulthood. And what the research is also showing that those chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, fatty liver disease that are tied to sugar are now appearing earlier and earlier in life, even in some cases during childhood, uh, but in most cases, um, young adulthood or middle adulthood. Now, there are different kinds of sugars, and I kind of have a guess that they may have, might have different effects on the body. Would that be true, Michael? Yes. Again, this is this is relatively recent research that is beginning to show this. I mean, it wasn't long ago, and some people still do believe that sugar is sugar. And to a certain extent, that may be true, but there are different, different types of sugar that have different effects on the body. And the clearest example of that are uh, glucose and fructose. Glucose and fructose are what we call monosaccharide sugars, six carbon molecules. When glucose and fructose join together, they form sucrose, which is what, every, what is known as everyday sugar or sucrose. That's the white crystal substance that you can buy in the grocery store and is used in most household baking. That's sucrose. But when sucrose enters the body and is broken down into glucose and fructose, those two uh, smaller sugars have completely different effects on the body. Uh, glucose uh, is used everywhere throughout the body for energy. It's highly regulated by the hormone insulin that's produced by the pancreas and is essentially the main fuel for the body and it's combusted or broken down into, into carbon dioxide and water. Fructose, on the other hand, is completely different. It looks different. It's, a, it's shaped in a pentagon, whereas glucose is a six-carbon molecule arranged in a, in a, in a um, hexagon. Fructose is much, much sweeter than uh, glucose. But the big difference is inside the body, it's not used for energy. It gets taken up almost immediately under most circumstances by the liver. And the liver converts fructose into fat. And that fat can either stay in the liver and build up in the liver and cause liver disease, which is very problematic, which can occur slowly over time. And most of that uh, fat that's made from the fructose is is, re is repackaged back out into the circulation as lipids and can contribute to dyslipidemia or high lipids in the blood, which is the hallmark feature sign of cardiovascular disease. So the research is now showing that it's sugar in the diet that is a major cause of heart disease, not fat. And that is because of this fact that sugar, fructose in particular, is converted by the liver into fat and then released back into the circulation, contributing to risk for cardiovascular disease. So that's just a very clear-cut example of those different effects. So calorie for calorie, glucose and fructose would be identical. At a molecular basis, they're identical. Six carbons, 
12 hydrogens and six oxygens, they both yield four calories per gram. So at that level, yes, they're identical, but inside the body, it's basic biochemistry. They're handled very differently and will have very different effects on the body. That said then, Michael, is there a healthy level of sugar intake for a child? We don't have very clear guidelines on this. There are some uh, global guidelines, for example, by the World Health Organization uh, for adults. Very few of these are specific for children. Uh, One of the problems is that children are growing, so they're daily recommendations for calories and therefore nutrients uh, differ by age. I think most people would agree, and, 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 and certainly some organizations have endorsed the fact that between zero and two years of age, there, sh- there should be zero added sugars. So, so here we talk about different types of sugars and their source. So added sugars meaning sugars added to the diet. It doesn't include the natural sugar in milk, which is lactose, or the natural sugar that you would get from eating a piece of fruit. Here we're talking about added sugars. So the natural sugars, like from dairy and from fruit, there's no concern or guidelines on that. What we're talking about here, just to be clear, are sugars added to the diet in soda, or in yogurt, or in processed food. So here the guidelines would say between zero and two years of age, zero added sugars. From two years of age up to 18 years of age, it would vary from about zero grams per day to about uh, 25 grams per day, which is about six or seven teaspoons of sugar, and that increases during childhood growth because younger children will be eating less and older children will be eating more. That roughly translates to what the World Health Organization recommends, which is 10% of calories from added sugar or for for more optimal effects, 5% of calories from added sugar. That's what we would recommend uh, for children, 5% of calories. So for a fully grown child, for example, that could be 2,000 calories per day. 5% of that would be 100 calories from sugar, which is about 25 grams of sugar. Okay, that said, if you, um, if you like the taste but you don't want the, the, the impacts on the body that, that sugar, or fructose, or glucose might have on your body, um, are low-calorie sweeteners a good replacement for sugar? Not at, Probably not at this time. Uh, we talk a lot about this in Sugar Proof, and again, a lot of this is relatively new research, and we need a lot more research. There's very little research on the effects of these sweeteners like aspartame, ASK, sucralose, or even the natural sweeteners like stevia or monk fruit. There's very little research on the short-term or even or no research on the long-term effects. 
At this time, we would not recommend them because we just don't know enough about how they're going to affect the body. But there is research showing that they may introduce their own set of problems uh, on the body. Uh, they will trick the body into thinking it's receiving sugar when it's not. The, these compounds turn on sweet taste receptors that are located throughout the body, not just in the mouth. Uh, and besides, ones that are uh, natural, let's say like stevia or monk fruit, many people just don't tolerate the food, the, 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 the taste of, of those sweeteners. And so Emily may want to talk a bit more about this, but our concept is if you're going to want something sweet, you, we should try to focus on natural whole food sweeteners that um, also come with other benefits, such as uh, receiving the, the nutrients and the fiber uh, from the whole fruit. So... In sugar-proof, we would probably, we definitely do not recommend replacing sugar with sweeteners because of the, the, the potential side effects or the unknown effects of those compounds on the body. And we suggest other alternatives for maintaining sweetness in foods. Yes, I think, you know, something that we talk a lot about is, is sugar as an addictive substance and it's not just sugar it's really sweetness and some of these substances are you know thousands of times sweeter than regular sugar and so if you replace regular sugars with the, the low calorie sweeteners you're not really doing anything to address that addiction to sweetness and uh, we just you know we encourage families not to use them as replacements uh, What's really tricky about the topic, though, is that these sweeteners are hidden so well in foods. And oftentimes you look at the package, you know, something like a Robinson's fruit juice drink sold um, in the UK. And you see it says no added sugar on the front of the package. And it seems like, oh, this is, you know, a healthy alternative to juice drink that has sugar. But actually it's, you know, has a couple different types of sweeteners in it. And this is common with drinks but also with yogurts and sometimes things like granola bars have you know regular sugar but also artificial or um calorie sweeteners added in so yeah food, food companies have become very savvy at trying at hiding these products and they can do that with things like stevia which are natural compounds by saying uh, all natural products or no added sugar when in fact it's got some type of uh, artificial or low-calorie sweetener, even a naturally occurring one like stevia or monk fruit. Emily, how do you avoid over-restricting kids and causing a backlash with sugar consumption? It's hard. And um, I think, you know, what what we suggest in Sugar Proof is, is really just to avoid coming down on kids with, you know, you can't have this, you can't have that kind of attitude. Because you know, as we know, kids don't respond well to that. It just can backfire and sort of put, you know, sweet treats on a pedestal, which we absolutely don't want to do. Um, we want to 
reinforce the point that nothing is, is truly, truly off limits. And yes, we don't recommend sweeteners, but you know, sweet treats do form an important part of our, our lives and celebrations and things like that. And we're not intending to deprive families and children of that experience. But we suggest an approach where um, kids are involved. So they're able to help choose, you know, we, one of our suggestions is the one treat a day rule. And I hate to say rule because we don't really mean rule, but it's it's sort of a guideline. And I've raised my kids with this and I've taught um, families that I've worked with this as well. And it's really helpful. It's like a choice. So, you know, many times on a, a given day, there's just way too many opportunities for sweets, you know, through parties or things that might be at the house, left over from holidays or offered by family or friends. And so when kids have the agency to choose, oh, you know, I want my treat today to be this piece of brownie. Um, and then they're, you know, they feel like they've had the choice and they've had the treat. And then when there's something else is offered later in the day, parents um, and children are on the same page. So they can say, well, you know, you've, you chose your treat for the day. So let's save these other things for a different time. And my kids have responded really well to that and they've internalized it. So now they know okay, I've had my treat for the day and that's enough. I'm satisfied. Those are the type of things that we talk about in the book to avoid um, restriction. Another, another strategy that we use that works quite well is the seven-day no-sugar plan. So this is, this is and we, we, in, in the book, we provide families with step-by-step guide on how to do that. <clears throat> And like I said earlier, the intention is not to cut sugar out completely forever. The seven-day plan is intended as a kind of a reset. Uh, if you take, if you go seven days without added sugar, first of all, kids will learn a lot, and parents too, about the sources of added sugar in their diet, and it will force or encourage them to find alternative replacements. And that could be as simple as a family realizing, oh, I use this peanut butter that my kid loves, but it has a ton of added sugar in it. And then they have to go out and find an alternative brand without added sugar. And all of a sudden, they kind of eliminate that source of added sugar for, for their family's diet. So we use this as a, as a learning experience and as a way to reset uh, sweet preferences and eliminate what we call usual culprits. We're actually doing a seven-day sugar reset in our family right now. We're on day two, and we, you know, we've worked with families around the country who have done this, and it's always it can be painful at first for many families who have a high sugar consumption, but it always works out to have uh, multiple benefits and a way to kind of reset sugar again. We're not eliminating it forever. It's just a way to kind of gradually become less dependent on it and identify alternatives to everyday food products that have a lot of sugar in them. Are there some simple food swaps that families can make that would lead to a reduction in sugar, simple ones that you're happy to share? Emily, you want to take the first stab at that? Sure. Some of the biggest ones that we suggest relate to beverages. So we suggest um, 
taking out fruit juice, which is a huge source of sugar in the diet, and uh, particularly fructose, which, as Michael explained, is harmful for the liver and the body in general. So we suggest um, you know, offering whole fruit, whether that's you know cut or you know just an apple or some berries, any type of fruit in its natural form, and then taking out juice and having water as the primary beverage. Um, and then also other drinks that are sweetened, such as soft drinks or fuzzy drinks. And um, we suggest replacing those with sparkling water that's naturally flavored, that doesn't have any type of um, sweetener in it, or just plain water. You know, with you can put things in the water to make it more flavorful, like cucumber slices or orange slices, strawberries. And then um, the other swaps that we like to focus on relate to breakfast. So taking a look at the cereals that have sugar in them and thinking about could those be replaced with a low sugar cereal and then perhaps help with some fresh fruit or added sweetness and you know, extra nutrition with the vitamins and minerals and the fiber. Um, and then things like, you know, instead of buying porridge oats that have, you know, sweeteners in them in packets, um, making your own and using dried fruits to sweeten. Um, or making a savory porridge. That's a really fun one that we talk about in the book. And then we also um, talk a lot about snack foods because some of the prepackaged, actually most of the prepackaged snack options are full of sugar. So we suggest some easy recipes um, that can be used to replace things like granola bars and sweetened yogurts. And we also suggest, you know, give ideas for easy things that don't require a recipe. So, you know, having kids have some whole grain crackers with a slice of cheese or some avocado instead of having biscuits, for example. Okay, in terms of um, sugar consumption most recently, the, this is the year that has changed everything with COVID-19. Um, um, Michael, Emily, do you have any thoughts about or observations about sugar consumption and how that's changed uh, ever since lockdown? Yeah, it's it's changed everything. We we uh, there's nothing in the book about it, unfortunately, because uh, we finished the book. We signed off on the galleys before all this happened, so we're 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 developing some new material that will be on our new website, for example, that will uh, talk about this. And I think our household is no different than other households since COVID-19 and shelter at home. We, my kids love to bake sugary baked treats appear on my desk frequently. Uh, I'm home all day. I used to bike to work and now I'm home all day. So clearly, you know, we're all susceptible to the change in activity levels and diet levels. And we're currently developing some strategies, uh, for example, around like like Emma just mentioned, in terms of snacking. If you're going to be home all day and susceptible to snacking, then we need to make sure our 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 homes are um, filled with healthy snacks. Provides suggestions for healthier snacks and make them available. Um, we also spend a lot, like Emily mentioned, we spend a lot of time talking about breakfast, and this may be one 
silver lining in a sense because we think breakfast is an important start to the day for kids and that if there's too much sugar at breakfast, then that can cause effects throughout the day. Typically breakfast, at least in our house and many people I know, typically breakfast is a very hurried meal because kids are getting busy, getting ready to, to, to leave for school and there's not usually a lot of time. Bre- the breakfast, because of COVID, we may have more time at home with kids to focus on things like breakfast. And again, in Sugarproof, we provide a lot of different suggestions to help families get out of the usual rut of breakfast, which is typically sugary cereal, juice, toast with jam, pancakes with syrup. There's lots of simple ways to adjust that uh, paradigm that becomes less dependent on sugar. And often that just takes a bit more extra time and care and thought. So we may have that extra time right now to to make some of those changes. Um, But those are some of the initial thoughts I have. Emily, do you have anything to add to that? Just to, you know, amplify what you said, it's been such a stressful time for all of us. And food really does bring comfort. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I think it's it's a time when families can enjoy baking and cooking together, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be extra sweet things or things that end up leaving you feel bad and feeling bad in the long run. And I think this is also where our recipes come in. Um, so, you know, with the book, um, we give lots of ideas for different things that families can make and even that kids can make on their own. You know, if they're bored and hungry, uh, a lot of our recipes are easy enough that kids can really do the whole thing, you know, from start to finish by themselves and help out in the family and, you know, have a healthy snack. Michael Gorin, Emily Ventura, I'm really looking forward to reading Sugarproof. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure, Stanley. Thanks for thanks for having us. Really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tess Bird and Professor Stanley Uliajak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.